Today we're going to talk about some real-life superhumans, why you need the challenge, where you believe the limitations are set in your life, and how you can start to become closer to being superhuman in your own way. You're listening to Proving Grounds. There's going to be a lot of times in your life when you have to take a step back and reassess the limits of what you thought is possible in your own life. Because for some reason, we create these false assumptions for ourselves and just assume that we're not capable of things. It can be in all different areas of life, physical limitations, cognitive limitations, professional limitations, even things that have already been done before. It seems like the default is to think, well, yeah, that person might have done it, but that doesn't mean that I could do it. Not long ago, I was at the gym with one of my training partners, and he's both a coach and an athlete, so he's no stranger to the world of athletic ability, but we got onto the topic of running form, which led to the topic of running shoes, and then the history of running, which ultimately led me to talking about ultramarathoners. And that's where we got to one of those assumed limitations. The more I kept talking about people running 100 to 150 miles at a time competitively, He bluntly told me, there's absolutely no way. Without stopping, I don't believe you. Even after I assured him that I was telling the truth, and I have friends who've ran ultras, he still wouldn't believe me until he got his phone out from the locker room and checked for himself. And then he was absolutely blown away by the truth. And I have to say, it was absolutely fascinating to see the process of someone thinking that something was impossible, and then being confronted with the evidence that turns their preconception of what's actually possible on its head. And it wasn't just the 150-mile races that people ran. It was the realization that races like that are actually pretty common and that the true limits that people were pushing themselves to were well beyond that and, simply put, mind-bending. So we're going to do something interesting today. And uh, before I break down the applications, and why this is important to your daily life for normal cases, well, anything is going to seem normal compared to some of the things we're going to talk about. But we're first going to explore some examples of people doing seemingly impossible things. Since ultra running came up, let's start there. If the 150-mile races weren't extreme enough to challenge what people would consider milestone accomplishments, like running a marathon, just wait till you hear some of these. So, Dean Carnassus once ran 350 miles in 80 hours and 44 minutes, nonstop and with no sleep. This is the same guy, he also ran 50 marathons in 50 days, which is actually nothing compared to James Lawrence, he's also known as the Iron Cowboy, who completed 50 full Ironman races in 50 consecutive days. That's, if you do the math, that's 120 miles of swimming. 5,600 miles of cycling, and 1,310 miles of running over the course of 50 days straight. What I'm most impressed by is just the logistics alone of getting from one race to another. Like, 50 days and 50 full Ironmans in a row. Like, that just, that's crazy. What else do we have? Scott Jurek, who's, he's one of the greatest runners of all time, with championship victories in almost every ultra event, set the record for completing the entire Appalachian Trail, which is 2,189 miles, in 46 days, 8 hours, and 7 minutes. And the crazy thing about Scott is when he first started running, he was actually pretty slow compared to his other running partners. It wasn't until one of his buddies talked him into running an ultra, which he didn't even think he was 
going to be able to finish it. But they realized that the longer the race went on, the faster he got. He actually ended up beating his buddy in the race, and their their college running team never let him live it down until Scott started winning like ultra after ultra after ultra. And ultra endurance feats, they're not a byproduct of modern progression either. The most well-known proof of that is the Ruramari, or more commonly known as the Tarahumara Indians of the Copper Canyons in Mexico. They're an ancient tribe of super-athletes, and in their language, Ruramari actually translates to the running people. From similar stories of running 200 miles at a time on a regular basis, just for self-transportation, to using running as a hunting method, and they'd literally chase animals until they died. No joke, it's called, if you want to look it up, it's called persistence hunting. There's Remote, there's actually reports of the Tarahumara chasing deer until their hooves fell off. Right, if all that's not crazy enough, let's toss in another variable here, and let's put extreme cold into the madness. A man by the name of Wim Hof once summited Kilimanjaro wearing nothing but boxer shorts, and nearly summited Everest wearing only shorts and shoes, and he only stopped short of the summit because he had a chronic foot injury that flared up. He holds multiple world records, like sitting in a container full of ice for 112 minutes and running <laughs> running a half marathon above the Arctic Circle wearing no shoes and no shirt. It's just crazy. He claims to and he claims to have no superhuman genetic ability. He attributes most of what he accomplishes to meditation and breathing techniques to control his physiology, which he thinks is something that anybody can do. He also subjects himself to scientific research. He once he once let a group of scientists inject him with an endotoxin, which is like injecting somebody with a virus, and he was able to force his body to reject the top the toxin. They also replicated the study with some students that he taught the method to as well. The reason why it's important is that all this stuff just seems ridiculous, like it's impossible. And it's that it challenges the boundary of what you assume to be typically possible for humans. I can guarantee that at some point in their lives, most ultra runners couldn't believe that they'd run even a half marathon. Or if you met them the first day that they started running and told them that one day they were going to run 150 miles straight, they'd call you crazy. The same concept applies outside of the physical milestones as well. Maybe for you it's entrepreneurship or math, science, or philanthropy. You see, most people who are wildly successful in life are simply that, people. Most of them, even the best of the best, are just as human and just as unspecial as we might be. Walt Disney was fired from a newspaper because he lacked imagination and had no original ideas. Albert Einstein wasn't able to speak until he was four, and his teachers told him that he wasn't going to amount to much. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team, and Oprah was demoted from her news anchor job because she wasn't fit for television. Really, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is abilities that aren't related to natural talent. The person who succeeds is the person who's the most determined to succeed. The person who doesn't give up when things get difficult. And most importantly, the person who challenges the belief that everyone else has about where that line is that sets the boundary between what's possible and what's impossible. Okay, let's break into some pragmatic applications for that supposition. May as well, we're talking about it. So we've identified that determination, perseverance, and pushing the boundaries are key components to driving success. How do you improve those areas of your life? Well, you're not going to like it, because there's a reason why I brought up 
a whole lot of examples of physical feats of endurance to preface this episode. Yeah, don't worry. I'm not going to tell you that the only path to success is to head out for a run, although I might encourage that. But the real solution could actually be more difficult than that for you. But that's okay. There's a trick behind every single one of those examples of physical endurance that we talked about, and it's this. They're not relying on their physical capacity to accomplish the impossible, but their mental capacity. The exact same patterns of struggle that exist for an ultra runner at mile 100 of a 150 mile race is the same thing that a marathoner experiences at mile 16, and even as a new runner may experience after the first kilometer of a 5k. The phenomenon is entirely fabricated by the mind, and it's derived from the body's natural tendency to want to hold on to a state of homeostasis. Now, the funny thing about homeostasis is that no growth exists when you're in a state of equilibrium. Lifting weights in the gym is a really good example of this. It's an re- excellent metaphor for growth in life because the whole concept of lifting weights is to push yourself out of homeostasis to the point where you're actually damaging muscle tissue just so your body can repair them to be stronger the next time they're met with that kind of resistance. And just like your physical attributes can be trained, so can your mental attributes. So what's the most effective way to train your mental attributes? Training your physical attributes. There's a reason why most people hate going to the gym, hate going for runs, and people consistently have to set their New Year's resolutions every single year, and they last for a few weeks before fizzling out. And it's because it's difficult. It's hard work, and it sucks. And it's not the physical fitness element of it. I'm not saying get in shape and Once you get in shape, you're going to have improved mental attributes. That is actually the reason why most people abandon their fitness goals so readily. Because the dirty secret that no one wants to admit is that it doesn't get easier, and it's not supposed to. You just get faster or stronger, but the moment that it's no longer difficult is the moment that you're not making progress anymore. The place that you have to go to the first time you do some kind of physical training, when you're out of shape, and there's a place where your muscles burn, you're gasping for air, and your mind's trying to convince you to stop, is the same place you have to go when you're considered in shape if you want to continue making progress. The fundamental lesson of physical training is to find the place that's most difficult for you and then learn how to be comfortable there and eventually how to thrive there because the same stress that occurs in those situations mentally show themselves in situations that typically keep you from reaching your personal goals in life in general. Doing anything successfully really is about endurance. I mean, think about it. What are the linguistic equivalents for endurance used outside of physical capacity? We use words like perseverance, persistence, and determination. How many potential Michael Jordans quit after being cut from the team? How many Walt Disney's decided that maybe everyone's right, maybe they're not creative? How many Albert Einsteins started to believe people when they called them stupid? The common thread that ties every single successful person together, regardless of category, is that they didn't quit. They went out and they did it, regardless of others believing in them and regardless of even if they were qualified. Two rules to never forget. One is it's never too late to start. And two, you absolutely must not believe the voices that don't believe in you. You can welcome them. After all, every grand adventure needs an adversary. Juliana Burring 
at 32 years old, became the fastest woman to cycle around the world. Now, what I love about this story is the fact that she had only been riding a road bike properly for eight months. She had very little money with no commercial backers at the starting line and an overwhelming consensus that she was unprepared and out of her mind. In an interview, she said, Nobody believed that I would make it, certainly not all the way around the world. I was not an athlete and not a cyclist. In fact, there was nothing to qualify me for such a large undertaking. Nothing but willpower and the determination to finish, no matter what, I was out to prove that everything was possible. So, you take someone who's not an athlete, barely even a cyclist for that matter, and you put them on a bike and find out that they have the capacity to ride that bike around the world, and in record-setting time on top of that. The reason I like examples like this is that the only reason that no one else is doing it is because it hurts. It's difficult. And it's not even the riding of the bike part of it, really. It's the waking up at 5 a.m. every single morning for 150 days and convincing yourself to get back on the bike. That's where people quit. They quit at the point where they're thinking about how hard it's going to be somewhere in the future before even getting into that situation. And that's something that's relatable to everything because it doesn't matter what it is you're trying to succeed at, you're going to be pretty bad at it for quite some time. And if you're progressing properly, you're always going to be bad at whatever it is you're working on at the time to improve it. That's where you see people give up. It doesn't always look like, I'm done with this forever. It more commonly looks like a plateau that will never turn into a peak. The moment that you stop working on stuff that you hate doing because you're bad at it is the moment that you stop progressing. And guess what? The person who's willing to do it is going to be the person that passes you up. I was searching for a quote that I like to use, and I couldn't remember where I got it from. The quote is, where the body goes, the mind will follow. And what I found out is, the quote that's more commonly known is actually the opposite of that. It's, where the mind goes, the body will follow. Now, there's a lot of truth to that statement. More so after you've developed your mind to be more resilient than your body. But what about things that your mind doesn't want to do? See, there's a duality to the hypothesis presented in that quote. And it's based on the idea that the mind and body are fixed to one another. If it's true that where the mind goes, the body will follow then it also must be true that where the body goes, the mind will follow, both of which are incredibly useful in different situations. So what happens when your mind turns against you and it starts thinking, well, I don't want to do that. What if I look stupid? What if it's going to be cold and make me uncomfortable? I remember the, I remember the first Spartan race that I ever signed up for. It was in... Fort Carson, Colorado, and it was just full of those kinds of thoughts, constantly. And that was when I learned the importance of where the body goes, the mind will follow. Because when you step to the edge of a giant ditch filled with ice water and mud, and you're already exhausted, and your mind is saying, nope, we don't want to do that, and you kind of stand there for a while, and then you're given a choice. Do you listen to that little voice that's telling you you don't want to take the first step, or do you just turn the volume knob down in your mind and just take care of the task at hand. Where the body goes, the mind will follow. It's a cool moment once you recognize it because your mind goes from screaming at you not to do something that's going to push you out of your comfort zone to being dead silent the moment your body moves in that situation. And you know what happens? Your mind resets itself to the situation. It shifts from, well, let's not do that 
to, well, here we are, let's figure out how to do this. And the reason for that is now the most important thought in your mind isn't, well, how cold is this going to be? It's refocused on the now, which is, what's the most effective way to get out of this cold water? A relatable example would be like going swimming in a lake or a lap pool. And you sit by the side of the water and you have a little chat with yourself. And then you realize that it's been 10 minutes and you're still sitting on the edge of the water thinking about how cold and uncomfortable it's going to be when you first get in. You're not even in the situation yet and it's already paralyzed you. But then what happens? You hop in all at once. There's a moment of shock and then you're good. Your buddy calls out to you, how's the water? And you say, it's actually not that bad once you get used to it. Or even simpler, you probably have a smaller version of that same scenario every single time you get into the shower and when you're thinking about getting out of it. So whenever you're doing something that you're nervous about or that you know is going to feel uncomfortable, even something like public speaking, a project larger in scope than anything you've done in your career, whatever it might be, sometimes it just means taking the first step. Your mind's going to reorient itself once you do. So that's a practical fix for when your mind isn't cooperating with what you're trying to accomplish. But how do we work towards setting that threshold of where you feel uncomfortable at a higher level? What if you want to address the root cause of the issue and get your mind to stop trying to convince you otherwise every time you're sitting at the edge of the pool or step into the gym or trading warm covers in the morning with going to work? I really like Joe DeSena's frame of reference concept to address this problem. Joe DeSena is the founder of Spartan Race, and his adventures in endurance began pretty simply. He was trying to shed off some of the weight that he was putting on from his desk job, and he was doing that by running the stairs in his building every single day, which naturally, of course, led him to running the Iditarod on foot without any dogs. A logical progression, I know. Your frame of reference is the threshold by which your mind and body believes that something's difficult. Let's say the elevator in your building's broken. Since you're accustomed to using the elevator, the idea of using the stairs from that frame of reference seems much more difficult than it is in reality. Now let's look at the, res the reverse perspective of that. If you strapped a 45-pound weight vest to your chest and struggled your way up the stairs, climbing up the stairs without it would seem like a walk in the park. By subjecting yourself to increased amounts of controlled stress, you're able to completely change your perception on simple things that you used to think were stressful. There's a time that a friend and I were mountaineering in the Rockies, and to simplify a complex chain of events, we ended up stuck in a tent at 12,000 feet in a blizzard for two days. And on top of that, we had 60 mile an hour Chinook winds battering our tent relentlessly the entire time. But I tell you what, Dealing with traffic on my commute, by comparison, was a breeze for months after that event. It's pretty clear to see the, the extreme examples, but what about the more practical examples that apply to the less threatening challenges that we face on a daily basis? Do you find yourself getting nervous when you talk to certain important people? Why not take on more public speaking opportunities? Oh, public speaking, why? That's the worst! Because it sets a new baseline for you. Do it enough times, and you're not going to get jumbled up whenever you need to talk to somebody when a lot's at stake. What if you're trying to read something that's relatively dry and scholastic for at least an hour a day, and you're struggling to stay focused? 
Why not try reading for three hours instead? Tomorrow, one hour is going to be a cakewalk. You could apply that to almost anything in your life that you're unsure as to why it's been so difficult for you lately and figure out a way you can raise the threshold and then reduce your perceived effort for what you'd like it to be considered normal. The mind's influence on perceived effort really is something to take into account as well. There was a study done in 1985 on the effects of sleep deprivation on performance in elite athletes. And what the study proved was actually pretty fascinating. They had a group of athletes complete the same exercises both after a full night of sleep and after being kept awake for 36 hours. And what they found is their output was nearly identical. The only difference was that when they were fatigued, they perceived that they had to exert more effort and it felt more difficult and that they had to work harder, even though they were doing just as good of a job. Your brain has the ability to play these kinds of tricks on you, but once you can identify that, you also have the ability to remind yourself that you're still capable. So how do we tie this all back into the super endurance athletes? And seemingly, they're superhuman feats that we talked about at the beginning of this episode. Because most of you probably aren't planning on going out and running an ultra marathon anytime soon, or ever for that matter. So let's oversimplify it a little bit to make it a more clear example. Most people used to think that running a marathon was an incredible feat of endurance until a few marathoners decided to have a 150-mile race, and that blew everybody's idea of what they thought was possible out of the water. And then somebody runs 350 miles at once, and now the bar's been set again. We set our limitations based on what the general consensus that everyone has for what they deem as normal. And it doesn't matter what walk of life you're in, Back when the standard method of travel was a horse, no one could ever even comprehend the idea of traveling at speeds faster than 25 miles an hour until somebody invented the car and the train and all pre-held beliefs on what the limitations were were shattered. Aside from physical feats, chances are that there are presuppositions for what's possible in whatever area of your life you're trying to improve. And it's important to remember that Ordinary people can consistently overcome the imaginary boundaries between what people think you're capable of. Even in intelligence in general. How many of you have been told that you're not the brightest crayon in the box so many times in your life that you actually began to believe it? I have a friend who was like that. He grew up not known for being a very smart kid. And that was also the assumption that people would reinforce. So he ended up just accepting it early on in his life, and that was just the way that things were. I ran into him again later in life, and I noticed immediately that there was drastic changes in his, in his well, cognitive ability. And I thought, man, what, what gives? What changed here? It was that noticeable. And he told me, well, one day I just decided that I was going to start reading. It was terrible at first, but after a few months, I realized that I actually enjoy reading. So you combine learning with the epiphany that you're not, in fact, stupid, and your potential is way higher than you limited it to. And that's something that can drastically change your life. So the next time you think that you're just not very good at something, you need to really examine that. It may be less that you're not good at it, and more the fact that you haven't invested enough time into being good at it. And you may need to think outside the box to make it happen. Thinking outside the box actually is really important here because 
What happens when you actually have limitations that are holding you back? And I mean real limitations, not just a lack of faith in yourself. Here's the thing about real limitations. They're not limiting you from reaching your goals. They're limiting you from reaching your goals in a specific way. And to be honest, that's a good thing. It's going to force you to see the problem from a new perspective that other people aren't even looking for. And your likelihood for discovering an innovative solution to that problem is going to skyrocket because of that. And don't find yourself on the wrong side of what the world thinks is possible. To get yourself thinking about this for topics of life in general, use this as a mental exercise. Do this regularly. Look at the things around you in your life, whether they're objects, processes, business models, technology, or even just general knowledge and understanding of things, and try to imagine what that thing will be like in 200 years. Who cares how viable it is? Just come up with wild, creative, sci-fi ideas of how those things could potentially evolve. And to give yourself a reference for that, something that's tangible, pick a time in history, about 100 or so years ago, and put yourself in the shoes of the average person then, and then imagine what your reaction would be to things now. In fact, if you were a time traveler, and the only rule was you couldn't do anything to concretely prove that you were a time traveler, and you started describing the future to those people, they wouldn't believe you. And they'd think that every, everything that you're saying is impossible, and that you should probably be institutionalized. And back then, those are not the institutions that you would want to be thrown into. So, let everybody else think about the ways to improve the average in the same way that they know how to, it doesn't matter what era of history you're looking at, there's always the same pattern. There are the people who believe the limitations, which are the majority, and then the crazy few who decided to challenge those beliefs. And I'm going to guess that if you made it this far into this conversation, you're the latter and not the former. All right, so let's do our recap of today's episode here. We talked about some examples of seemingly superhuman ability to prove that there are extreme cases of otherwise ordinary people breaking down our preconceptions for limitations. Then we broke down the commonalities from their achievements into what's applicable for our own lives, which is the fact that these feats are mental, not physical, which is a concept that we can apply everywhere. We talked about changing your frame of reference to move the bar for your self-imposed limitations and how training your body physically can be used to train your mind. And then we finish it off by applying the concept of challenging limitations, by examining the believed limitations of the past to where they are now, and then conducting the same process for where we are now and applying that to the future. This was, uh, this was a pretty fun episode. Aside from the lessons on limitations, I think it's a cool idea to introduce topics like ultra-endurance to people who may not have heard much about it. Because it's absolutely mind-boggling to discover what people are capable of when they put their mind to it. And then showing that there are lessons that can be learned from anything, as dissimilar from your world as they may be, and how you can extract the useful components of these stories and apply them to your own challenging of limitations. And to be completely honest, that's one of the drivers behind why I started this podcast in the first place. Somebody brought it up not too long ago, and they thought it would be an interesting idea if I were to put something together and my response was, well, yeah, a podcast would be a lot of fun. Maybe if I had one or two people on the podcast with me. I really don't think that I would even be capable of making a podcast that's just me. Like I wouldn't be able to just go in front of a mic and talk for that long. 
And it actually kind of bothered me when I was thinking about it later. And I set off to prove myself wrong. And as it turns out, I put false limitations on myself. And now the next challenge is actually to see if I can do it with two or more people. And I guess we'll find that one out here pretty soon. Anyways, thanks for joining in today. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you're given a notification when the next episode comes out. And I'll see you right back here on the next episode of Proving Grounds. Mm-hmm.